you have your Bible open, you probably already know the verse by heart that I will read. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray together. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, we bow before you now asking you to draw near to us, to teach us, and to glorify yourself among us. May this be a time when we marvel at your greatness, your goodness, your kindness, as we think about who you are and what you are doing. Bless this time we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Many times over the last few years, my wife and I have seen two cats wandering through our backyard. They usually didn't stay very long, they just seemed to scope out the scene and then climb out over the fence. But in April, things changed. My wife noticed that one of the cats was carrying something in her mouth and soon realized it was a newly born kitten. And we began to pay close attention and discovered that she had four little ones and had sequestered them safely amidst a stack of bricks in a secluded spot against the side of our house. So we began to feed Mama Cat. We called her Duchess. And because there was food, along came the other cat that frequented our yard. They obviously were related. They treated each other well. Since they had the same markings, though Duchess was prettier, we called the new cat Sister, Duchess and Sister. We had no objection to feeding her, and this went on for two months. Eventually, we found homes for the kittens, and all we had left were Duchess and Sister. But in June, things changed again. One day, Sister came for the morning feeding, followed by a kitten. Now, there was only one, and he seemed to be about eight weeks old. He wasn't newborn, and he wasn't from Duchess's first litter, so we assumed that Sister had also had a litter in April, and this kitten was from that litter. Perhaps he was the only survivor. Maybe his siblings had been given away from wherever they had been born. But he kept coming every day, and we were happy to feed him. Let me describe him to you. He's all black. From the tip of his nose to the last hair on his tail, even the bottom of his paws are black. I named him Kiwi, and I came to really enjoy having Kiwi around our house. My wife was able to invite him into our kitchen. He began to visit inside the house morning and evening, and he began to respond to the name Kiwi. But he is a feral kitten and is, as one might expect, extremely skittish. He's startled by every sound and movement. We've been able to get him to eat out of our hands, and even when I sit on the floor, which believe me is not an easy thing for an old man to do, when I sit on the floor, he will eat treats that I place on my lap. But Kiwi won't let us touch him, and even on the hottest summer days, he wouldn't stay in the cool house. No matter what we've tried, he runs away. I've given him treats, ice cold water, I speak gently to him, I tell him that we want to be his benefactors, I ask him to stay and let us take care of him, and he looks at me with a friendly kitten expression, but he's not tame, and he doesn't understand. See, all my attempts at communicating my desires to Kiwi fail. There is, in fact, a great divide between Kiwi and me. He's a feline. I'm a human. Certainly, we have some things in common. We both have two eyes and two ears. 
a mouth and teeth and a tongue. We have hearts that beat and lungs that breathe air, etc. But those outward similarities fade away when I consider the vast differences. I can reason and plan. I can set and accomplish goals. I can complete complicated tasks. And I can reflect on my life and its value. And most importantly, I'm made in the image of God and can worship and serve him. Kiwi cannot do these things. He reacts to the world around him. He functions according to the need of the moment. Hunger makes him into a hunter. Noise sends him into hiding. He sleeps most of the day outside behind our house, though he's wary of his surroundings. He can understand when I tell him that I would like to show him affection and to protect him when the cold winter weather comes. He's a feral cat, and he acts like a feral cat. But there is one great thing that Kiwi and I have in common. We are both creatures. We do not live independent lives. We rely on oxygen and food and water. We're subject to disease and injury and cannot preserve our lives without divine assistance. Every breath, every heartbeat, every bit of brain activity depends on God's preservation of my life. This is true for Kiwi, and it's true for me, and for you as well. In every way, our lives are dependent on someone else, someone far greater who is able to sustain us all at every moment of our existence. Now, since Kiwi and I are both creatures, there are certain things we can share. There is, for example, a certain amount of communication between us. Kiwi knows his name and responds to it. He's learned when to come to the door to be fed. He often greets us in a squeaky, high-pitched kitten voice when he comes into the house, but he can't speak to me, and he certainly doesn't understand much that I say to him. The distance between us is too great. Now, I tell you this story, you're probably wondering why are you telling us about a kitten? I tell you this story because there's an analogy here. In the same way that Kiwi is the object of my affection, even though he cannot acknowledge it, so I am the object of God's affection, completely dependent on him for everything in my life. I want you to think with me about the difference between the one true living God and you and I as his creatures. The word of God teaches us that we are the result of his creative act. We would have no existence without him. He spoke and he brought time and space into reality so that everything that is not God is a created thing. At the culmination of creation, he formed a man from the dust of the earth and a woman from a rib taken out of the man's side and he gave them life. They became living beings, rational creatures, able to think and to act. Listen to how they are described in chapter four of the Baptist Confession. It says this, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge righteousness and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. These words are very important 
and I cannot comment on all of them right now. But I want you to think about a few things that we find here. We are taught that Adam and Eve were created after all the other creatures. And this makes them different in several ways. For example, as the final creatures to be made, God intended for them to be the crown of creation. They were made with reasonable and immortal souls, a blessing given to none of the other creatures. And the reason for this is that they might be creatures suitable for that life unto God. They were made to worship and serve the Creator and were granted the immense privilege of being made after the image of God, defined as knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Their reasonable and immortal souls gave them the ability to know God and to reflect his righteousness and his holiness. They were made moral creatures, having the law of God written in their hearts and given power to fulfill it. These were the greatest blessings of creation granted to the first man and to the first woman. Even after their disobedience and sin in the garden, their failure to obey and love the Lord with all your heart, soul, their heart, soul, strength, and might, it may be still be said of them and their descendants that we have reasonable and immortal souls made to love and serve the Lord God. Though it has been distorted by sin, the image of God remains in us, and this is who we are as creatures. And all, all of this depends on the Creator. We have no independent existence. Despite what William Ernest Henley said in his poem Invictus, I am not master of my fate, nor am I captain of my soul. My whole life relies on the one who made me. I'm a creature just like Kiwi. And the distance between the creator and myself as his creature is far greater than the distance between Kiwi and I. In fact, it is a gulf so wide that I cannot cross it. This is impossible. It cannot be done. Now, we've only scratched the surface of who we are as humans, but now I want you to think with me about the great creator. Now, this may shock you. It may shock you to hear this, but we cannot know God in the way that God knows himself. We are like Moses, only able to glance at his back parts. God's knowledge of God can only be known by himself. Only deity can comprehend deity. One of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, said it well, to know God is hard, to describe him is impossible. Our limited minds cannot grasp the greatness, majesty, and glory of the God of heaven and earth. He is unlike any other. He is infinite in his being, eternal in his essence, and unchangeable in nature. Every word by which he describes himself to us is only a shadow of the brilliance of who he is. When we contemplate these terms, we must attempt to strip them of all human limitations and frailties and confess that they are exalted beyond our ability to express. He condescends to our weakness. He reveals himself in terms that we can, to some degree, understand. What is infinity? God fills all space, not just our universe, but every created place. He knows no bounds, 
He cannot be contained. Even the heavens have been brought into existence. He speaks of dwelling there in order that we might begin to conceptualize his excellence. Or, what is eternality? God has no beginning and he has no ending. He lives in timelessness. There's no succession of moments for him. Only an eternal now, and even that is just our conceptualization of what it means to be eternal. Now, I want you to look at some scriptures with me, beginning with Genesis 1. We ask the question, who is God? Well, the language of verse 1 is abrupt. In the beginning, God created. It actually assumes a great deal from the reader, for he or she must first think of the creator before contemplating the creation. If everything exists because of him, we rightly need to pause and meditate on who he is. I ask you this, are you able by your spoken word to give life to anything? Do you have the power to use your voice alone to make fruit trees or to give life to animals? Of course not. You have life because there is a creator, but what do you know of him? Now, if your Bible is printed as mine is, I want you to notice something. Look down at your Bible, but instead of noticing the verses that we are considering, turn your eyes to the left and look at the preceding page. What do you see there? It's blank. Probably there are no words, no marks of any kind. It doesn't give us information about God. Genesis 1-1 simply dives into his work of creation, expecting that you as the reader will have some knowledge about who this great maker is. And so what I want to try to do is fill in the blank page so that we might have an intelligent idea of who this one is and so that we might properly respond to him. First, we may say that there are two sources we ought to consult to help us answer this question. First, there is what we usually call general revelation, or sometimes natural revelation, or even natural theology, or in the Baptist confession, it's called the light of nature. These are simply terms that express the teaching of the word of God, which says things like this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. You know that from Psalm 19. Or, what may be known of God is manifest to men, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Those are words from Paul in Romans 1, 19 and 20. In fact, frequently when the scriptures speak of creation, they do so to proclaim the glory of God and to teach us that there are some true and important things about him which are revealed in the world around us. If we deny this, we deny a foundational truth of scripture itself. Do you remember in the book of Acts, when Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra and they were mistakenly identified as messengers of the pagan gods? Remember that incident? Paul was beside himself and he appealed to the crowd. These are his words from chapter 14. Men, why are you doing these things? 
we also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. You see, Paul's plea to the Lyconians was based in creation. He was declaring to them the truth of the God who made and provided for them. A few chapters later, Paul found himself in Athens preaching to Greek philosophers. He took advantage of a statue in the city that he had found. It was dedicated to the unknown God. Paul said this, The one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. His message began this way, I serve the true creator, the one who made all things and who calls you to repent. You see, in these instances, the apostle was affirming the things that he taught in Romans chapter 1. God may be known through his works, but we must be extremely careful with this doctrine, for it is easily abused and has often been twisted. Paul makes this point quite clearly in the same chapter of Romans that I read to you from just a moment ago. Sinful humanity does not see or understand the revelation of God in creation. Paul says, they change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You see, creation truly discloses God to us, but our blind eyes and perverted hearts refuse to receive the truth. We mangle the good thing God has given us and exchange the glory of God for idols to worship. And this is why general or natural revelation requires something else more than a supplement. It must be guided by the teaching of the word of God. It is scripture that keeps us from falling into the sinner's trap. The created world constantly testifies to the existence and power of God and leaves us without excuse for our unbelief. But it does not teach us all that we must know about him. For that we must look elsewhere. Based on what creation reveals about God, we may write certain things on our blank page, but we must be careful with them. Our tendency is to go too far and to compose too much. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 10. The 10th chapter of Jeremiah's prophecy. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with an axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. 
They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great, who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are alone, they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates, it's brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the metalsmith, blue and purple are their clothing. They're all the work of skillful men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is a falsehood, and there is no breath in him. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. These words are full of irony. A skilled craftsman gathers material from far and near and then molds it into a shape and it becomes an object of devotion. In fact, those who manufacture these idols are shamed by the very things they make. Instead of looking up to heaven and bowing before the creator, they revere the lifeless fruit of their own efforts. That's what sinners do. They twist the truth of God into a human production. They misread the world God has made, turn away from him, and serve nothing. Brothers and sisters, we must resist this temptation and speak against it. The God who creates is the one true Lord, and he alone may be and must be worshipped. You see, this is a reason why the doctrine of direct creation by God is so important. Attempts to undermine his role in bringing all things into existence are really attacks on God himself. A wicked and unbelieving society seeks to make the world naturalistic. This is all there is. There is nothing more. And it seeks to substitute other man-made objects for worship. I've seen such things in my travels. If it were possible to separate them from religious worship, they might be considered beautiful. But when you see people bowing down to them, giving, giving offerings of food or money, praying for favors, it's evil, easy to see the evil that is inherent in idolatry. People exchange the glory of God for the work of the craftsmen. They cannot escape the testimony of God shouted by the world around them, but they won't acknowledge him. So they substitute. Here in the West, we seldom see idols formed by human hands, but we must not think that idolatry is absent from our supposedly enlightened society. Many years ago, Francis Schaeffer suggested that there are two values that dominate our culture, personal peace 
and affluence. These are two great idols worshipped in our society. Personal peace, the desire to be what I think I want to be without any responsibility to others, and affluence, the accumulation of wealth and prosperity for personal comfort. Of course, these two idols are still accompanied with guilt feelings, but society provides a way of tamping down the remorse of conscience. There seems to be no end to ways that people may contribute money to causes. Some seem to be good and worthwhile, others not so much. But the appeals you see on television are ways to assuage the nagging sense that we're not so good as we think we are and we must do something. In many ways, these are the fruit of the removal of God from the world. They are the idols of an open-minded society and fulfill before our eyes the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. Still, it may be that our culture recognizes the need for gods and supplies this need with something else. I would suggest to you that this is the role played by superheroes. Think about many of the popular beings that inhabit comic books and blockbuster movies. Aren't they just modern versions of the ancient Greek, Roman, and Norse gods? Some even share the same titles and identities. I was told last night that I should be watching Loki, Norse god. Series apparently on Disney+. Plus. While few, if any, worship them by bowing their knees, they devote themselves in other ways. Humans are inherently religious. Meditate on this, but we must press on. Secondly, our blank page now has some information on it. God exists, he is good, and he is powerful. But that's about all. Even pagans can agree, though they distort the meaning of these phrases. We need much more, and so we turn to our other source, the Word of God. And here, too, we must exercise caution. The God who created all things is not like a laboratory specimen, an object to be poked, prodded, and examined. When I was in 10th grade biology class, we dissected a fetal pig. It had been preserved in chemicals and was intact and whole. We were given scalpels and instructed to cut the skin and find various organs, the heart, the lungs, the skeleton, etc. It was not my favorite class. But I remember this. The act of dissection proved that I was greater than that little creature. It was subject to my actions. I could dissect it and learn about it. Brothers and sisters, we must never, ever think of God in this way. When we contemplate him, we must do so with utter reverence. It's not for us to dictate what he may be. Rather, it is for us to receive what he reveals to us, even when that revelation drives us outside categories we know. There is no genus for God. He is unique in himself. There are none like him. In another passage, very similar to Jeremiah 10 that we just read, the prophet Isaiah serves as God's mouthpiece. And he says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. That's Isaiah 46, 9. You see, creation itself is sufficient to teach this lesson, but the scriptures make it plain. Human language and thoughts are not sufficient to describe our God in all his beauty and his majesty. 
we bow before him and receive by faith the things that he teaches us about himself in the book that he has given. He accommodates to our language and understanding so that we might know true things about him. And these things are recorded for us in what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. And of course, I remind you that the word testament is simply another word for covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. Now, we can go back to Genesis 1.1. Perhaps you still have your finger there in your Bible. It describes to us the beginning. This is the moment when space and time were created. It is teaching us that there was God and nothing else, and that God spoke and brought the universe, the heavens and the earth, into existence. While it's impossible for us to describe properly and understand fully this doctrine, it is what the text teaches us. There is God, and there is that which comes into being as a result of his actions. Everything that is not God, literally everything, is created and subject to him. In a real sense, Genesis 1-1 causes us to look into eternity and to realize that it presents us with knowledge that is far beyond our ability to understand. Maybe some of you have heard my good friend James Dolezal illustrating this point. He says that we cannot comprehend God, though we may apprehend God. By this, he is helping us to recognize that we may know true things about God, but we cannot know him in the way that he knows himself. In fact, Christian theology has often recognized that it's more helpful to state what God is not than to say what he is. And for this reason, we use terms of negation, such as infinite, not finite, immortal, not mortal, immutable, not mutable or changeable, invisible, not visible, incomprehensible, beyond our ability to comprehend. We are finite. He is not. The finite cannot contain the infinite. We live and we die. He never does. All around us changes, but God is always God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's a spirit who has no body. And because he is alone to himself, we cannot know him in the way that he knows himself. Genesis 1.1 teaches us that God is eternal. He's the creator of time, and he controls it. He's not subject to time. Isaiah 57.15 speaks of the high and holy one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Listen to Matthew Henry's comments on these words. Henry says this, In his greatness and majesty, he is the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, that with him there is neither beginning of days nor end of life nor change of time. He is both immortal and immutable. He only has immortality, 1 Timothy 6.16. He has it of himself, and he has it constantly. He inhabits it and cannot be dispossessed of it. We must shortly remove into eternity, but God always inhabits it. How do we describe this? Really, we cannot. We are bound by time. Even while we've been together this afternoon, seconds and minutes have passed. There has been a succession of moments. But God has no succession of moments. He is eternal. And so he created the beginning. In the beginning, God, he created the beginning. That's what Moses teaches us. But there's even more. 
Not only did he create time at the beginning, he also created what we call space, time and space. Heinrich Bullinger, one of the early reformers, expressed this beautifully when he said that God is not contained within the universe. There is no place in which he dwells in his fullness. For our sakes, he makes himself known in visions, seated on a throne of majesty and glory, but this place is not a place that contains him. An old writer put this quite starkly. I remember seeing this on a page and being shocked by it, but as I thought about it, I realized how important it was. He said this, God is nowhere. God is nowhere. Now, to say this is simply to say that location is not of the essence of God's being. Or as some theologians have expressed, he does not have a local mode. There is no place that is greater than he. You and I live within places. This building has a roof and a ceiling, walls and a floor. We're within this space. We have no presence elsewhere while we are here. And our homes are just like this. But this is not true of God. He cannot be confined to any place. He created them all. God is nowhere. And to be honest with you, this makes my head spin. But there's no other conclusion we may draw from these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that is not God, in this case, space or place, only exists because the eternal creator made it. Now, it may seem strange to use this term, space or place, but it is creature. Place, space, is creature. Not in the living, breathing sense, but in the sense that it exists because God made it to be. You see, there's nothing greater than God, not even space. Sometimes we call this God's immensity. That's another one of those negative terms to say that God always fills all places. When we say that God is nowhere, we don't mean that he's absent from us, but rather that he is not contained within creation. Creation cannot hold him. Listen again to the inspired words of scripture from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 66. He says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, Where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. Heaven and earth are the work of God's hand. Space does not contain him. Do you remember the words of King Solomon in his prayer at the dedication of the great temple that he built in Jerusalem? This is what he said. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. You see, in a real sense, a true sense, God is everywhere, though never contained or confined by any place. David understood this when he wrote these words that you know well. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Paul and Silas understood this when they sang hymns of worship in the Philippian jail. And you and I should meditate on this truth. The one who will never leave us or forsake us always keeps his promise. So we can say God is nowhere. By that we mean he's not contained in any place, but God is everywhere.
Wherever we go, there is God. Since God is the creator of space, we must insist that he's a spiritual being. Our confession expresses this with the words, without body. If we were to use more direct language similar to the other terms, we would say that God is incorporeal, another negative. He has no physical form. I'm sure you remember the words Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman during their encounter at the well. God is spirit. Once again, this is precisely the opposite of the idolatry of the nations and sometimes of the people of God. Turn with me to Psalm 115. Verses 1 through 8. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in him, in them. Now this is another description similar to what we saw in Jeremiah chapter 10. But I want you to notice several things about this. We have here a contrast between the true and living God and the idols of the nations. The Gentiles ask the question, where is your God? And they do this because the God of Israel cannot be seen with the human eye, nor represented by images made with human hands. As the psalmist thinks about this, he speaks for the believers in Israel and he looks heavenward. He says, God is not on the earth in the same way that the idols are, that is in a location. He is above in heaven and there he does his own good pleasure so that no one is able to thwart his purposes. And then we, the writer goes on, and he presents us with a long series of statements about the idols. They have bodies, but they have no life. And we read about the senses, sight and hearing and smell and touch and other physical capabilities. They have mouths that have been carved, but their mouths cannot speak. They have eyes, but they are blind, ears that are deaf, noses that cannot discern aromas, hands that lie limp by their sides, feet that have no mobility, and throats that cannot make sounds, even muttering. They are lifeless. These things are obvious to every thinking person. But notice again verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. What can we say about the God who has no body and who dwells in heaven? We may say this, exactly the opposite of what the psalmist says about the idols. God has no body. That means the Lord has no mouth. And yet he speaks to us words of life, words that create. Let there be light, and there was light. He has no eyes, and yet he sees all that is in the universe. He is without ears, yet he hears all things. Our God has no face and no nose, yet he smells the sweet smell of incense, the prayers of the saints. He has no hands, and yet the arm of the Lord is strong to save. He has no feet, and yet he moves as he pleases. 
nor does he have a throat to mutter. In fact, the words that he breathes out are clear to all. They bring the message of the good news to sinners. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. He is spirit and very much alive, but utterly unlike the idols of the nations. We praise him because he has no body and he needs no body. He is spirit. Now, there's so much more that we could say. We could speak of God's immutability. The one who creates and sustains the heavens and the earth did not expend his power in that act and thus reduce himself. He didn't need a period of recovery because he had used up his strength when he did this great work of creating. When the word of God looks back to creation and reminds the people of their great king, it speaks of the Lord, of the Lord as the one who is still the same. Malachi 3.6 speaks to us in the Lord's voice. I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And James, drawing out implications from the doctrine of creation, says this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, do you hear the creation language there in what James writes? He calls our God the Father of lights. Makes me think of those words, let there be light. You see, the good and kind God is always the same. That which he was at creation, he is now. Our lives are all about alteration. We're born, we grow old, we die. But our God is ever and always the same God. Now, we might spend time on his power. In the beginning, God created. Who else is able to do this? We may form many things with our skills, but we cannot bring forth something from nothing. This is the province of God alone. We could even speak of the profound doctrine of the Trinity. If we continue reading in Genesis chapter 1, we learn about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And if we look to an echo of the creation account in John's gospel, there he tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ was active in the work of creation. The Christian doctrine says God is one and God is three. And our confession of faith asserts that this is the foundation of our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him, that God is one and God is three. The great fourth century bishop of Constantinople, I quoted him earlier, Gregory Nazianzus, expressed this beautifully in a sermon on baptism that he preached on January the 6th in the year 381. He said this, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Now, our blank page is being filled. Not only does the creator God exist in power and goodness, as we learn from the light of nature, but contemplating creation, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, contemplating creation we're taught that, first, his eternal, unaffected by our perception of the passage of time. He is immense, 
the one who cannot be contained within his creation. He is spirit and has no bodily form. He is immutable and he never changes. He is the great three-in-one, eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The scriptures help us to understand that we may write these things on the blank page across from Genesis 1.1. They simply express to us what God has revealed about himself. There's much here. These few words are full of amazing truths, especially when contemplated in the light of the rest of scripture. Now, why have I gone through all of this? It is because I want you to have a sense of the distance between ourselves and God. That's where our confession begins. That's where the chapter on the covenant begins. This is the great divide. It is far more extensive than the difference between myself and a beautiful small little kitten named Kiwi. We can only begin to understand how great this gulf is. And so what are we to do? We cannot reach God. Are we left in despair? Well, our confession answers this for us. This majestic and holy God, to whom no one can be compared, condescends to us. And he does this by way of covenant. Our brothers will help us to understand what this means. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your glory is beyond our ability to speak. Our, our lips are polluted. How can we praise you appropriately for your greatness and your goodness? We thank you for the way you have revealed yourself to us in the world around us and especially in the, in the word of God. We pray that we might get a sense of this great divide that we cannot cross, but that you have crossed by reaching down to us in me, by means of your covenant. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.